Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to a reload of the What's Next podcast. This is one of my favorite episodes, and I always like to bring those ones back that had a huge impact, not only on myself, but I got a lot of feedback from listeners just like you. I hope you enjoy this week's reload of the What's Next podcast. Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to my What's Next podcast. I have the pleasure of having today Josh Linkner. He is a five-time tech entrepreneur and hyper-growth CEO, two-time New York Times best-selling author, top-rated keynote speaker, founding partner of Detroit Venture Partners, and the founder and former CEO chairman of ePrize, which was serving 74 of the 100 top brands working with many of the most progressive CMOs in the world. He's a pioneer in digital marketing, winning dozens of awards for groundbreaking innovation, at the intersection of tech and advertising. But my favorite part about Josh is he is an amazing jazz artist. So with that, welcome Josh to the What's Next podcast. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. Great to be here considering what's next. <laughs> well, this is the, you know, this is the glass ball. This is, you know, all anybody has to do is listen to this podcast. They'll figure it all out, I guess, right? So I, I'm going to start us off uh, to, to sort of get us going here, doing something I like to call bullish and bearish. And it's a way for me to just ask three random questions and you to say, you know, whether you're bullish about it or bearish about it. And, uh, you know, now that I've been doing this a little bit, it's funny, everybody gets a little gray too. So <laughs> you can, you can fall in the middle because sometimes people want to go in both directions, but I'm going to, I'm going to start with this one, which is I think near and dear to your heart, but outside well-known startup communities like Detroit, uh, really giving sort of the left and right coast a run for their money. I couldn't be more bullish. Uh, as, as you know, Tiffany, I'm a Detroiter and a, and a huge supporter of the entrepreneurial community in our hometown. But it's not just Detroit. It's many other, whether it's a Rust Belt city or a non-traditional city. The one thing that we know is that the digital economy has leveled the playing field. And, and place can matter, certainly, but it, does, it, it isn't the only factor. So if you're in Wichita, you might be able to build a terrific technology company. Or, or if you're in Tampa Bay, Florida, you know, you could do some great stuff. So we're no longer prohibited by the geography in which we live. In fact, it's quite the opposite. There may be uh, new advantages that we can discover. For example, in Detroit, we have very low cost basis. There's a lot of local support. There's plenty of capital on the sidelines. Uh, there's a uh, great wealth of talent. And so I think it's about not trying to replicate what's happening on either coast, but more about trying to leverage the inherent strengths of one's own geography. Excellent. All right. The next one, also near and dear to your heart. I'm kind of cheating a little bit. Jazz is the language of the world. <laughs> well, couldn't be more bullish on that one also. These are softballs. Uh, and well, these are softballs. The reason I said that, I, I needed to start it out, you know, where people could get to know you a little bit. So they know you're all about Detroit and are all about jazz. Uh, uh, and then the third one, not so much a softball, but the companies can actually reinvent themselves. Well, also bullish on that. I mean, companies absolutely can reinvent themselves. You know, a lot of times when we see examples of this, we think of only the wholesale reinvention. You know, IBM went from typewriters to PCs to, to now services. But we can reinvent ourselves in different ways. In other words, you don't have to sort of like end a whole company's history to start a new one. There could be micro reinventions along the way. And if you think of reinvention as an ongoing process rather than a once a decade initiative, it becomes much more accessible and much less risky. Real quickly, though, I didn't just get to comment on the jazz thing. I have to go back to that. I really believe jazz is the language of business, especially now. You know, Tiffany, in the past, maybe the metaphor for business was that of a, a classical symphony conductor. One person, the CEO, stands in the center of the room, 
and she or, or, or he is the, the all-knowing leader. And their job is to simply get everyone to play the notes on the page in perfect alignment and accuracy and precision. The problem is the world we live in today, there's no such thing as a sheet of, score of music that is perfect for success because we're living in, a, in unprecedented times of change and disruption and, and, and shifting concepts. So more apt today is the metaphor of a jazz combo. Small teams uh, playing music that isn't on the page Real-time innovation, taking responsible risks, trying something new, shaking it up, passing the baton of leadership from one person to the next. And I believe if we embrace that jazz mindset, whether or not we like listening to the art form of jazz music, we become better leaders and our careers begin to soar. Well, how, you know, a short little story, how Josh and I met, uh, we were speaking at a conference together in Las Vegas uh, and uh, we were backstage and, you know, I, I knew who he was because I'd actually read his book, uh, The Road to Reinvention, which we'll talk about in a minute. And and he had this really unique presentation. So I was up and then I, there was probably like an hour between the two of us. So I was back in the audience and, you know, up comes Josh with a guitar over his shoulder. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> and... He ha invites these two other people on stage and he's like, look, you know, I just, I, I, you know, went and I found these two musicians. I've never met them before. They're jazz musicians. And I think it was a bass player. And, uh, I don't remember who the other one was, if it was a trumpet player. Um, and the three of you stood on stage and you just started riffing off each other for about, you know, two or three minutes. And then you'd say something and then the jazz band would play again. And I think it was a great metaphor for the audience to see that even though you'd never seen each other or met each other or played music together, that you could create a team very quickly, you know, in the spirit of music. Exactly right. And by the way, it's not about me or about people who've been trained in jazz music. That's exactly what all of us do on a daily basis in our business lives. You know, we're thrown into new situations with new partners or customers or team members, and we have to co-create in real time. And there is no going back and correcting mistakes. You know, we have to we have to forge ahead. And of course, we're not given a sheet, set of sheet music to play off of. We may have some direction, but we really have to improvise in real time. And so I think that the more we can harness those skills, which by the way, all of us as human beings, we're inherently wired to behave that way. Uh, if we can harness those skills, we can get on to great things. Yeah, and I think today with the pace of change that everybody is chasing this sort of reinvention you know, and innovation and they're big words. And, you know, I happen to have one of them in my, in my title and my current job. And people ask me all the time, you know, Hey, well, what, what does innovation mean to you? And I said, the challenge for me is that I could ask a room of 10 people what that means to them. And I get 10 different answers. So I'd, I'd love to hear sort of what you think about how do you define reinvention today and, and what can people learn, um, from a lot of the work you've been doing over the last decade in this area? Well, when you think about these giant words like innovation and reinvention, they can feel overwhelming and scary. And if you think about it as this gigantic, massive, back the whole company risky thing, if that's choice number one and choice number two is do nothing, most of us choose choice number two because the stakes are just too high. And, and furthermore, you might say, well, innovation, if it means inventing the light bulb or reimagining our whole industry, you might say, gosh, I don't have an idea for that. Or maybe that's not my job. I'm not wearing a lab coat or I'm not the CEO. So I really like to encourage people to think of everyday innovation as a different type of concept. In other words, the little stuff. Applying the lens of innovation to how you run your Monday morning team meeting or how you cold call for a new prospect or how you send a report to a, to a vendor or supplier. 
It's those little things, practiced with stunning regularity, that add up to greatness. So you can take the weight off of the world off your shoulders. You don't have to like completely reimagine your industry or change all the things in your business life. Instead, just try doing it with the little stuff on a regular basis. And with frequency, these little innovations, micro-innovations, micro-reinventions add up to great things. And I think you nailed it. I think people get very overwhelmed and almost paralyzed by the big invention, right? Like, how do we Uberize our business or Airbnb our business? And I'm always like, okay, well, let's step back a second. Like, that's difficult. But what can you learn from those uh, sort of business model transformations that you can bring into your business to allow you to take those small pivots? And so how do you, what do you recommend rather for 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 companies to identify what those small pivots may be and, and not necessarily look, you know, fail fast and iterate quickly and be agile, like not those things, but what are the, what can you sort of point them to that maybe Monday morning they do something different that allows them to start to get these digestible chunks? Well, one very simple and fun way to do it is um, spend a week or so just making a list of your traditions. And if a tradition is basically just doing something by definition the way you've done it before. And in our lives, by the way, again, that's just the way the mind works. We tend to be uh, creatures of pattern. And so if you've um, done something the same way and it's, it's worked pretty well, you tend to do it more often. So if you just spent one week and just wrote down, you don't have to write long paragraphs, literally just write one word of your various traditions, the traditional way that you show up to work or the way that you um, present on a sales call or the way that you give performance feedback to a, a, an employee of yours on a job review. So once you have that list, then my suggestion is just ask this question. What is the polar opposite? What if instead of you complying with each of those traditions, you forced yourself to defy them? Did the exact opposite. And ironically, the traditions can be a source of innovation. I'll give you an example. There's a bike manufacturer named Specialized. And bike racing is filled with traditions and a lot of rules and regulations. It's very governed. You, you can't just grab your Huffy and go ride it in the Tour de France. But so bike manufacturer Specialized sets out to create like the unbike. And so they made this list of every rule. And the rules themselves became their inspiration. For example, one of the rules said, well, well, the bike tires must, must be the same size. So they said, wow, great idea. What if I made the back one bigger to create more traction? The rule said no engines on board. They said, Eureka, awesome idea. Let's put a little engine in the crank to give you a boost when you're going up hills. So the very traditions themselves became a source of inspiration. So if the answer to your question is make a simple list of your various traditions and then ask simple question. Put them under the microscope and ask, what would happen if I did the opposite? What would happen if I defied the traditions rather than complied? And so would that, would that lead you? I know you've got a, uh, you know, a more recent book besides The Road to Reinvention called Hacking Innovation. Is that some of what inspired you there? I know that was very specific on what can we learn from another industry. But would that also be that sort of, you know, of hacking that reimagining and, and innovating and thinking differently of just kind of hacking those thoughts? Yeah, you know, for my most recent book, I wanted I was looking for a source, a new source of inspiration on uh, to about innovation and creativity and such. So it led me to hackers, and hackers uh, are obviously a big scary topic. It's our, our number one threat to national security. But if you put their motives aside, it's not so easy to hack into a bank. So I started looking at hacking, not as right or wrong or good or bad, but simply as a methodology for complex problem solving. That, like any tool, could be used for harm, but also could be used for good. So the purpose of the book certainly was not to teach or promote cybercrime, 
but more to say, what could we learn from hackers? And so I spent three years studying the mindset and tactics of hackers. I interviewed felons and law enforcement and cybersecurity professionals to get in their heads, to really understand how they approach problem solving and how do they approach innovation. And that's what the book really covers is, is the, the five core mindsets and 10 primary tactics of hackers. And you're exactly right. Many of those overlay beautifully to innovation. One of the big insights, the aha moments that I had in writing the book is that many of the greatest people in history really were hackers. So I would say that Martin Luther King was a hacker for social justice and Thomas Edison was a hacker and, and, uh, and, and Da Vinci was a hacker. They didn't write code. Obviously, they'd wear a hoodie and commit cybercrime, but they applied the same mindsets and tactics to their work and in turn uncovered greatness. Yeah, and I think, you know, it tends to be this term that's gotten very popular, right? Hacking growth, hacking marketing, growth hacking, you know, sort of hacking in general. Uh, and I think it, it, you know, some people misinterpret that with just kind of shortcut. Uh, and I don't think that it is. Uh, would you agree? Yeah, totally. That's a big myth that a hack is just duct taping a problem together. And it's really not. I mean, a hack to me, you know, solid hacking is really exactly the act of discovery. And that discovery can be permanent discovery that leads to billions of dollars in revenue and, 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 and wealth creation, et cetera. So it certainly can be used if, in a pinch to, to solve a near-term problem. But the same approaches, the same philosophies and mindsets can be used to take on some of the world's most pressing challenges and ultimately discover uh, solutions that become completely permanent. And, and I guess that, you know, with, with all your work, I know you're very active in the startup community. You've got sort of Detroit Venture Partners where you're you know, trying to um, build a really vibrant or you have built a very vibrant uh, startup community in Detroit and other places. And, and you're you know, passionate about that. And do you think that that startups understand how to identify sort of a pain in the market or a need and then that really sort of approach it in that hacking mindset, you know, where they kind of come at it with how do I solve this problem maybe differently from their industries learning from them like you did with, with the hack community, you know, the hackers uh, and how you apply the, the actual process of doing it, not the, not the things that they do on the, on the bad side of it. Uh, do you think that startups today have to really have that kind of mentality? I do. And I think some of them have it and, and not all of them, of course, do. Um, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that I see is people launch Me Too companies. They say, oh, I've got an idea. It's just like eBay, but for one little niche product. And the problem is that is more of a feature than a, than a real company. In other words, eBay could just offer, offer this new category and likely uh, completely uh, crush the new startup. And so I like investing in companies that are, I always like to say, is there a 10x advantage? In other words, are they bringing a solution to market that is 10x better than something else that exists today? Now, it could be a 10x uh, product advantage, but it doesn't have to be. It could be a 10x people advantage or a 10x cost advantage or a 10x uh, marketing advantage. But for me, it's a pretty good litmus test. Are they 10 times better in some category than al alternatives that exist today? And if they are, then, they, then it's worth exploring. If not, I'm likely going to pass as an investor. And so I think the startups that, will, that have made it recently and those that will continue to win are the ones that really embrace a bold new step forward. They're not trying to be a, a me too copycat or, or add just a little different touch to something ex that exists. They are pioneering a brand new approach to solving customer needs. And I think that that's where innovation really happens. You know, and I asked a minute ago, sort of what that definition is. I, I love that, that you just said, right? Where something is done differently, it adds value. It, it requires people to not have to completely reset their mindset because we all know that's really difficult. And it could be just even a little subtle, a subtle change uh, or a subtle invention 
but big nonetheless. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and I would I was you know back to your question. I, I kind of like defining. And I know many people have different de- definitions, and I don't know if one is right or wrong. But I think of creativity as the act of doing something or or, or thinking something that hadn't existed before. So if I said, hey, we should have a purple hotel, that is being creative. Now, it's not necessarily a good idea, but it was perhaps something that didn't exist before. To me, then, innovation becomes a subset of creativity. In other words, innovation is applied creativity. It's creativity that is harnessed in a productive way. So unless we were uh, entertaining guests that all dressed up as Barney, my purple hotel idea may not make sense. But an idea that would be um, practical and useful to solve real problems in the real world to me, that's what innovation is all about. It's creativity that's directed in a productive manner. And so you're right. People, ideally, you, you launch businesses that are, are bold and different, that are not me too, copycat type companies. But we can be innovative in lots of little ways. In fact, sometimes the big innovations are not the culmination of one giant idea, some lightning bolt from above. The big ideas are often culminations of lots and lots and lots of little ideas, all strung together in a unique and compelling way. I totally agree. And I think that people miss that that fact. I also think they misinterpret innovation as only have the product level, that they have to create this innovative product. And I use product sort of in quotes. But it could be the innovation in the way you service customers, could be in the way that you sell, could be in the way you um, deliver the customer experience. So you can innovate across multiple uh, areas in a business. It doesn't just have to happen in the product, right? 100 percent. And, yeah, so, and so, oh, so go ahead. So when I talk to companies, they say, well, yeah, I want to be innovative, but I sell bolts in manufacturing plants and, you know, those aren't an innovative product. And you're exactly right. What I would suggest people do is take a look in their business and say, what are the areas that you can't control? And, and you know, yeah, you could possibly re, you know, flip it upside down. But even for now, just put those off to the side. Instead of being uh, subdued and, and being overwhelmed by the things that are beyond your control or can't be changed, Instead, why don't you isolate the things that can? So if you manufacture bolts, maybe you could change the way that you price the bolts. Maybe you could change the way that you build the bolts. Maybe you could change the way that you market or create experience or even name the bolts. So there's always somewhere area in a business, even if some things are restrained by regulatory burden or even the the limitations of time and space, there's always some area in which to be innovative. Yeah, and I think that people also make the mistake that the innovation has to come, as you said, sort of from above. Right. That it's, you know, one person like, you know, a conductor, right, getting everybody to march towards this innovation versus the jazz band of I think there's more opportunity for bottom up innovation from frontline people who are actually hearing pains of the customer every single day that maybe the higher in the organization don't get that opportunity to hear. And so I feel like this bottom up innovation has huge opportunity, number one, but number two, also this external innovation from customers, you know, these idea storms that companies do like Dell or Starbucks and others where customers are actually giving innovative feedback or feedback to help direct product direction, you know, the next iteration of products. And so this bottom-up innovation idea storming, if you will, and then this external customer idea storming around innovation. Yeah, I love that thinking. And you go back to jazz for a minute. Jazz is this collaborative art form in which innovation is happening in real time, but there's not always a single owner for it. So for example, let's say I'm playing a jazz gig. I might hear a patron clink their glass in a toast in an interesting rhythmic way. So I might pick up on that and and, and say, but what if I mirror that image on the guitar, mirror that rhythm? 
But then I maybe play a little riff. And then all of a sudden the trumpet player, when it's her solo, she plays off that riff and tries something new. And then she comes up with a slightly elevated rhythm at which the drummer picks up on. And then that's a cue for the bass player to try something new. And so what's happening is that innovation is happening in the collaborative manner. The, the ideas are sparked and being passed from one person to the other. It's not that one person created and the others listened. It's that they were all participating in the creation. And I believe that's the most effective way in this day and age to be creative and to be innovative, not just waiting around for for lone genius, but instead to to riff in the same way that a jazz combo riffs off one another and their surroundings. And and I think it takes a special kind of company to be able to do that. The same way, you know, not all let's stay on jazz, right? Not all musicians are good in that unstructured, you know, play off of each other kind of jazz environment. They like it to be structured. I I'm guessing. I'm not a musician by any stretch. I can you know I could barely tap on on cue. But you know, I'm musically challenged, let's just say that. <laughs> but if uh, if um, if the organization isn't willing to riff off of that bottom-up innovation or external innovation, it falls flat. That's a real risk. And um, but but here's the good news. The good news, and you mentioned you're you're not a musician. Um, you know, you don't have to be a musician. You don't have to be into art or dance or something like that. But really, as human beings, we're all hardwired to think creatively. That's the way we're built. The problem is that most of us have been socialized out of it over the years. And the biggest blocker, the biggest poison that kills our creativity is fear. So if you're the kind of company that says, hey, I really want some good ideas, and the first time someone shows up with a wacky idea, they get fired, you've just trained everyone else to never show up with another idea. So as leaders, the best thing that we can do is create a safe environment. In other words, uh, Tiffany, if I said, hey, we're going to kind of riff back and forth on ideas and there's no wrong answers, and, and we want everyone's idea, they're all celebrated, no one's going to get called out or look stupid or whatever, you and I and others could, could, could riff on that no problem. You come up with all kinds of fun ideas. On the other hand, if I said, best idea gets a $100 gift card to Amazon and, and everyone else gets fired, no one's even raising their hand. So I know that's an exaggeration, but again, as leaders, the best thing that we can do if we want to harness the innovation of ourselves and our team is to eliminate fear put ourselves in safe environments, build rituals and, 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 uh, and, and rhythms that, that uh, support the raw act of creative thinking. And you will tap into this incredible natural resource that is usually uh, uh, dormant in many organizations. And I think if your employees are happy, your customers are happy, right? Because the employees, usually your front line, right? The ones we're talking about now are the extension of the brand in the eye of the customer. It's not like when the customer has, you know, a great experience that they go, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to call the product manager. <laughs> right? That's not what they say. You know, it'll be my sales rep or, the, you know, or a problem was solved. I can't wait to, you know, thank my customer service rep or whatever it might be. It's not that they, you know, call the finance director, right? So they are that front line. And if your employees are happy uh, and they feel like they're getting listened to and that they're empowered to come up with these ideas and that bottom-up innovation is, is not only um, wanted, but... It, it, you know, it's embraced and it's, it's really part of the culture of the business. They then reflect that on great customer experience. And the customer has a much different relationship. Even if something goes wrong, they're like, that's okay if it goes wrong, because I know when I call in, they'll make it right. If they don't make it right the first time, they're going to make it right. Because every other time they have, and the employee is always smiling and happy and wants to be on the call. It's not like, you know, you've interrupted their day. You know, it's like a multidimensional win. Because as you point out, customers are happy because employees are happy, totally. 
But also when employee engagement rises, then turnover goes down and morale increases, then productivity goes up. And on top of that, if you think about it, every person in your organization throughout the entire org chart has creative capacity. Even if they're a customer service rep or they're answering the phones, whatever, all of us are are creative. Wouldn't you want to tap into the creative resource of all of those people? And sometimes the person at the very front lines has the best insight. They may not have the ultimate solution, but their idea riffed on with somebody else, somebody else ultimately comes up with the game changer. So I think as leaders, we need to, to, to set up a culture, not only because it creates great morale, but and it does, not only because it great, creates great client interactions, and it does, it's because that all of us, can, if we tap into the, the, the holistic creative minds of our, of our organization, then our organization soars. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and what would you say about uh, companies that are, let's say, larger that are trying to go down this innovation path. I, I see a lot sort of doing these pop-up innovation labs. Uh, you know, Walmart's got Store 8. You've got, you know, banks that are doing innovation labs where people can be, you know, IBM with Watson. And I mean, there's all kinds of examples everywhere across industry. And they're popping up these innovation labs so that it gives teams this freedom to kind of riff off each other and come up with ideas and talk to customers and try things out and fail quickly, et cetera. Do you, do you like that innovation lab concept for larger companies as a way to sort of, you know, keep itself contained and, and let it get some, some sort of legs underneath, sea legs underneath it before it starts to kind of crawl, walk, run? I love it. I mean, it's basically like a greenhouse for innovation. And I'm excited to hear that, you know, companies are, are, are finally getting around to prioritizing it. You know, in the past, people would spend more money on the landscaping and their corporate headquarters than they would on creating a, an environment that was conducive to creativity. So I'm excited. I think it's a great step in the right direction. And I don't know if it's it's a, it's the final step. You know, um, one of the things that I do all the time with big organizations is I help them set up uh, innovation immersion programs. The theory is that with the Googles of the world who take one day a week to be innovative, that's, by the way, great. And they've yielded enormous uh, product gains as a result. But at the same time, if you're on Friday being innovative, you're still worrying about your your to-do list from Monday through Thursday. So a new model, which I really like, are these innovation immersion programs in which people are taken away from job responsibility for one to three months. There's a cross-functional team that all gets together to take on innovative challenges with no direct line responsibility at the time. And I think that separation really enables people to to explore bold possibilities and at the end of the day, drive massive business results. Yeah, because sometimes the metrics get in the way of the best intentions. And that's why those innovation labs have, have proven to be fairly successful, right? Because it gets them out of that day-to-day metric. Yeah, totally. And and also, you know, sometimes big creativity is nonlinear. I mean, if I said, okay, here's here's a set of paintbrushes, $11. Here's a set of paint, $21. Here's a canvas, $48. Well, that's those are the raw materials. But if, if, if it was Picasso and, and put all those things together into one, it could be worth $100 million. And so the point is that, that creative value isn't always created in a linear manner. And so we have to give people the, the space and, and time and, and, and room to really be creative without someone looking over them with, with time and motion studies and, and tapping their pencil on when's the ROI going to show up. So let me pivot a little bit. If if we say we can, you know, get all this innovation and reinvention and kind of you know hacking, hacking our way through, uh, and not in a bad way, right? In a good way. Much much that I hear on the road, whether I'm in a small business, a medium business, or a very large enterprise, and it doesn't matter really what region, you know, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or even in Australia, uh, New Zealand, or or in Asia, pack is growth is sort of number one, right? Everybody's 
concerned about getting net new customers, hanging on to the ones they have. And depending on what region it may be, look, I want to spend more time hanging on to the customers I have versus going and growing net new. But at the, but, but at the heart of it, everyone's saying, we need to grow. And so with all this coming at them, what do you think are the things, uh, you know, both in your startup experience as well as your, your big company uh, advising experience, are the things people are doing that's really showing great results as it, as it relates to growth, company growth, top line, you know, not sort of the bottom line growth? Yeah, totally. I mean, you can't cut your way to growth. I mean, in, in tough times when people tighten up their belt, they can, you know, can artificially boost up profits, but that's not sustainable. So real, the real growth has to be fueled from innovation. Here's the thing. The whole rest of the world is innovating, whether you are or not. So there's an old saying, if you keep doing the same thing, you'll keep getting the same result. That's actually worse because if you keep doing the same thing and everyone else is changing and evolving and innovating, you will not enjoy the same result. At some point, you know, that's going to crash. So I think it's incumbent on us, us to all to make sure that we are the source of disruption. Now, there's an old saying in, in business, which I've always hated, which is, well, we can't cannibalize our business. To me, that's such a fool, foolish thing to say because it implies that you can prevent cannibalization. In other words, I think you've got to flip it upside down. I think it's our responsibility to be the cannibal, to make sure that we are the ones putting ourselves out of business rather than waiting around for a competitor to do so. So, so back to your question, it really gets back to driving innovation. And again, it doesn't have to be changing the entire company that you have. It could be innovating in the little ways. You know, those, those imp uh, incremental improvements to a product or service offering, innovating the way that you sell, innovating the innovating way you serve, innovating customer experience, innovating the way you buy raw materials. But I think we're foolish to think that we, if, if we are ever resting on our laurels, that, that that's sustainable. I think, funny enough, you mentioned that. A good analogy to think of is that old video game Frogger. I'm kind of a geek and I grew up with Frogger in the 80s and such, but in Frogger, you know, you're this little frog and you got to leap from a, a log to, to a back of a turtle to the back of an alligator to get across this river. But the thing is, even when you're on stable ground, things are moving. In other words, if you leap onto the log and stay there, the, the log falls off the screen and you die. So I think that's exactly what's happening in our business lives, that we got to leap from stable ground to stable ground, realizing that we can never stand still. We have to keep forging ahead. And the advance button in this example is innovation. And, and I, I just couldn't agree more. And I'd say this, I think one thing that makes this even more difficult, and I'd love to hear what you think, is that people define customer fairly linearly. Like, you know, they, they feel like their customer has always sort of been the same. As they look for growth, as they look to, you know, in, innovate and reinvent themselves to kind of go after the same customer. And when I say same customer, I may mean, you know, it could be a, a demographic, a size company, you know, male, female could be a student, like, you know, those normal sort of segmentations. But now reimagining your customer could mean actually selling and servicing and, and, and innovating for things like AI for bots, for robots, for uh, internet, uh, internet of things, but industrial internet of things. And it really kind of throws this complexity in it uh, as well, wouldn't you say? I would. I would say that, you know, the, the times that we're living in are, are fascinating. It's never been more competitive. It's never been more difficult. The friction and barriers have never been, you know, lower. Um, but at the same time, I believe the opportunity has never been more profound. And so, right, we can reimagine, you know, a customer doesn't even have to be a human being. You're exactly right. Or a customer could be a distribution channel that didn't even exist 18 months ago. So within the turbulence of, of the business landscape, um, therein lies the opportunity. And for those that are bold enough to seize it, I think there are great opportunities ahead. 
Well, with that, Josh, this has just gone by too quickly, too quickly. So I'm going to leave you with one last question of sort of what do you think is next? What's next? Well, first of all, thank you, Tiffany. You, you do an amazing job and I'm a huge fan of yours and congratulations on the podcast and your continued success. Um, oh, thanks, Josh. What, what's next? I mean, it's such a broad question, uh, but I think what's next uh, to a degree is that each of us, our responsibility now is to crave what's next. And so I love the name of the podcast in general because it's always about what's next. The trap that all the companies have fallen into that we know about, from Blockbuster to Kodak to Pan Am Airlines, is that they cling to the past instead of lean into the future. And I, I think what's next for, for us on this, on this podcast is to think about what do we need to let go of to make space for what's next? One of my favorite comedians is Louis C.K., very successful, of course, and every year he throws away all of his old material literally forces himself to start with a blank page every year to ensure that he stays fresh and relevant and creative, to ensure that he is leaning into what's next. And I think there's a lot of magic in that. So I, I don't know what's next for each individual person. For one, it might be IoT. For someone else, it might be artificial intelligence. But I think for all of us, what's to get to what's next is an act of letting go, to, to cleaning up some room, giving ourselves the freedom and the permission to lean in. And wow, I think what's next, if we can do that, becomes very, very exciting. Well, Josh, that was fantastic. I might have to steal that soundbite. That was great. I, I just so appreciate you. I appreciate your, your support over the last couple of years that we've known each other. And it's just really been my honor and my privilege to have you on the What's Next podcast today. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the What's Next podcast. Appreciate your support. Please make sure you subscribe, share with your friends, and leave a review. Head on over to tiffanybova.com backslash next for show notes and additional insights from me. And I'll see you on the next show. Thanks again.